Well, good morning, church. Um, I honestly have no idea how long my voice is going to hold out today. So uh, this could be a normal length sermon, or it could be about 12 or 13 minutes. And uh, we'll leave that to the providence of God. I do have some cough drops and some water. I'll ask the sound booth for a little bit of help today, and I'll stay close on the microphone, um, try to save as much of my voice as I can. I appreciate the prayers of God's people over the last week as my family's been fairly sick, and uh, we seem to have turned a corner now, and everyone's fever-free and kind of making our way back, but still a, a little bit compromised in, uh, in some areas with coughing and hacking and all of that. So uh, anyway, we'll, we'll do the best we can today. Our uh, text for this morning is going to be Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. We are today in our third week of a four-week Advent series in which we are studying the four servant poems or servant songs from the prophet Isaiah. In a literary style similar to the Messianic Psalms, these four songs provide prophetic details of the sinless life, substitutionary death, and victorious resurrection of the Messiah. Recorded in the book of Isaiah, this revelation occurs some seven to 800 years prior to the birth of Christ. And we've chosen to use these songs this year to prepare our hearts for the celebration of the birth of Messiah. The first servant song of chapter 42 um, was preached uh, by Evan a couple of weeks back, and we saw in that servant song that this servant, this chosen one, um, had the Spirit of the Lord upon him. We learned about his character and nature when we saw that he would not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. We saw that he would faithfully bring about justice to the world and that he would be made a covenant for God's people and a light even to the Gentiles. Last week, James Terrence uh, preached from Isaiah chapter 49, and we learned even more about the servant's purpose last week. We saw that from the womb, this servant was to be the one who would return the tribes of Jacob and gather the remnant of Israel. But that alone would be too light a thing, too small a thing. We saw that this servant was to be more than simply a Jewish Messiah. He was to be a light to all the nations. And again, this principle of the covenant was referenced as the servant was said to lead prisoners out of darkness. Next week, on Christmas Eve, John will preach for us from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, and we'll see in great detail how the servant uh, in question here will suffer or was to suffer for the sins of his people. Today, we're going to be in this 50th chapter of Isaiah, and the topic of our conversation is going to be the faithfulness of the servant to God the Father. We're going to see that the words of the servant are the words of God. We're going to see that the strength of the servant is the strength of God, and that the servant commits without fail to the Father's will and purpose, demonstrating absolute unity within the Godhead. Now, to be sure, as both James and Evan have referenced in the past couple of weeks, there are various applications of this servant motif throughout Scripture. For example, the nation of Israel is frequently called the servant of God. At the conclusion of the regulations regarding the year of Jubilee, in Leviticus 25, God declares 
that the Israelites belong to me as servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. We also see this designation of servant applied to various prophets and those who would speak for God as his servants. Examples such as Moses, Joshua, David, Job, Naaman, these are all referred to as God's servant in various passages. And even unbelieving pagans or infidels have been used as God's servants. Through our study of the book of Ezra, we have seen even God use pagan kings such as Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes as servants to accomplish his purposes in returning the first two waves of exiles to the holy city. How can we also forget in the New Testament that God refers even to pagan governments as his deacons or servants who are accountable to him? So because of this broad use of the servant motif, commentators have offered much speculation about possible double meanings and secondary explanations for the identity of the servant in the four servant songs of Isaiah. While this speculation may be entertaining, particularly for unbelieving scholars, we will continue from this pulpit to read the texts that guide our Advent study with a hyper-focus on what James called last week the capital S servant. You're going to hear me refer several times. I'm going to steal that term from James because I'm certain he stole it from someone else. I'm going to use that term, capital S servant, again and again. Let there be no confusion that the four servant songs that make up our Advent study this year are ultimately about Jesus. Understanding the typology that underlines this servant motif is very helpful, but regardless of what types we might see, be they Israel or the prophets, or even pagan rulers. The capital S servant was the one who truly and faithfully served God and accomplished with absolute perfection what all other servants failed to do. So as we examine our text today, we will see the obedience of this faithful servant. In him, that is in Christ, we find the hope that we celebrate each Advent season. And in him, we're going to find today a pattern to be imitated as we seek to faithfully follow our God in the steps of the servant, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So with that, let's read our text this morning, beginning in Isaiah 50 and verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? 
Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Let us pray as we dive into the text today. God, we need you today. We need you every hour, particularly in this hour dedicated to the exposition of your scripture, Father. We beseech you to guide our thinking. I ask you, Lord, to strengthen uh, my voice today that I may proclaim the truths as they are contained in your word. I ask, Lord, that you guard me from error, that you keep us firmly rooted in scripture as we work through our passage for today. Father, may we all be taught by your Holy Spirit. May we all be led by him as we seek to know you and as we glorify you and praise you for your holy servant who came to this earth, who lived a sinless life, who died a substitutionary death, who rose again victoriously and who is now seated at your right hand. Father, may we all come together and bring praise to our King Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. So I'm usually pretty terrible at providing easy-to-follow points in my sermons, but today I think we're going to see that there are some pretty clear breaks in the text that will naturally allow this to be divided up into three sections. And I'll do my best to organize our discourse today around the central points of each section. We should also note that the first two sections seem to conclude with a logical and necessary consequent phrase. And we'll identify those each time. And the second, I'm sorry, the the final section uh, concludes not with a consequent phrase, but rather with an obvious question, an unspoken question maybe. And we'll take a look at that as well. We'll try to lay this out very clearly. And then at the end of each section, we're going to seek to apply the text to our lives as we look for an example to follow in this capital S servant. Okay, so point one for you note takers, point one. The capital S servant hears and speaks the word of God. The capital S servant hears and speaks the word of God. Our second point will be that the capital S servant is strengthened by God. The capital S servant is strengthened by God. And the third point in the form of a question, will we seek the capital S servant Or will we follow our own flame? Point three, will we seek the capital S servant or will we follow our own flame? So point one, the obedient servant hears and speaks the word of God. Let's let's look again to the first two verses of this text, beginning in verse four. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. The phrase, the tongue of those who are taught, is a euphemistic way of saying that the words of the servant are words enlightened by and informed by God himself. That means that in verse 4, the word of the servant is the word of God. The Apostle John makes this very clear for us as he designates Christ the capital S servant, as the logos, or the very embodiment of the word of God. Remember from John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the logos, the word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 of John 1, we see that the Logos, the Word, actually became flesh and dwelt among us. Throughout the ministry of Christ, we see him almost constantly establishing his teaching on sacred scripture, the law, the prophets, the writings of the Old Testament. In his initial temptation by Satan in Matthew 4, Jesus refutes every attack with an application of Old Testament scripture. When Satan tempted him to turn stones into bread, his response was a quotation of Deuteronomy 8. He said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When Satan challenged him to throw himself down from the top of the temple to test the words of the psalmist, that the Holy One would not be allowed to strike his foot against a stone, Jesus responded this time by quoting Deuteronomy 6. He said, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Finally, when Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world in exchange for worship, Jesus again quoted Deuteronomy 6, and he tells Satan, be gone, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and in him only shall you serve. Likewise, in dealing with the Pharisees, we see the Lord Jesus, who called the Pharisees, by the way, the children of Satan, We saw the Lord Jesus um, offer to them powerful questions again and again, rhetorical questions that rang something like this, is it not written? Have you not read? Throughout his ministry, he continually referenced and pointed to the writings of the Old Testament. In the Sermon on the Mount, he points his listeners to the Decalogue as recorded in Exodus 20. In affirming the ministry of John the Baptist, he quotes the prophet Malachi as having prophesied that he would come as a forerunner to Messiah. When he cleansed the temple for the second time, he quoted Isaiah 56 that says the house of the chosen one would be a house of prayer. And then when the scribes objected to the children shouting praises, Hosanna to the son of David, Jesus quoted the eighth Psalm where he asked the scribes, have you ever read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. Even with his final breaths prior to resurrection, as he hung dying on the cross, he spoke with the authority of Scripture, fulfilling predictions of the psalmist. In Matthew 27, we remember at the ninth hour that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, at that point, he's simply echoing Psalm 22. And then in Luke 23, we remember that at the very end of his life, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Again, an echo of the Psalms, Psalm 31. So what we see as we examine and we consider these examples of Jesus continually proclaiming the Old Testament scriptures, what we see is that the words of the servant are the words of God. And that's why in, in, verse, uh, in verse 4 of Isaiah 50, this phrase, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, is referencing the fact that the words of this servant are in fact the words of God. It is important for us to recognize here that the capital S servant, when he makes claims to have been given the tongues of those who are taught, This is not merely to be understood as one who has been acquainted with the scriptures, 
but rather the servant has a direct connection to and unity with the one from whom all knowledge flows. This is to say that he speaks the words of God because God is his direct source. Turn your attention with me back to Isaiah 50. Look at about the middle of verse 4. Notice, morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. The servant hears the truth of God and speaks with the words of God. The phrase morning by morning here is not indicating that God only speaks prior to lunch. No, that's not what this is about. Morning by morning indicates a daily, continual communication and ongoing communication between God the Father and God the Son. This ongoing communication then forms the basis for the absolute unity between the words of the servant and the perfect will of God. Jesus even speaks of this communication in his response to the questions of the religious rulers of his day. I want you to turn with me, please, to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I'd like for us to look at this text together while I take a drink of water. John chapter 8, we'll begin reading in verse 26. We see there Jesus speaking, I have much to say about you. That would be about the Pharisees and scribes and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Now, to be sure, there are some Christological questions that arise from this. As Jesus speaks of himself um, doing what he has been taught by the Father, doing the will of the one who sent him. But let us take the, the simplest understanding of this, and that is when Jesus speaks, God speaks. When the servant speaks and is faithful to the teaching of God the Father, we have direct communication from our Creator. The servant declares what he has heard from the one who sent him. He speaks as the Father has taught him. And when the capital S servant speaks, he speaks the unvarnished word of God. Notice also here at the end of verse 5 in Isaiah that the servant was faithful. Notice Isaiah 50 verse 5. Morning by morning he awakes, he awakes uh, my ear uh, as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. He not only heard the words of the Father, but he heeded the words of the Father. He was not rebellious. He did not turn back. He did not turn his back on what he heard from God. So as we compare the capital S servant to all the other servants, most notably Israel, we can see a clear distinction. For it could never be said of Israel that they did not turn their back on the Father. But Jesus, the faithful servant, never turned his back on God the Father. He always found himself in perfect obedience to the will of God. 
So while he didn't turn his back on God, notice in the next verse, the consequent verse, that he did, in fact, offer his back to those who would lay the whip to him and to those who would strike him. The consequence of these first two verses, 4 and 5, is found in verse 6 of Isaiah 50. Notice there, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. The consequence of faithfulness for the servant was the suffering that would follow. The Gospels actually confirm with incredible precision these instances of suffering as we look to the crucifixion narratives. Notice the consistency between the abuse directed at the servant in Isaiah and the account of the mockery that Christ endured leading to his death. In Matthew 26, we read that they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? And then in Matthew 27, we see again that they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Again, identical language here from the prophet Isaiah in verse 30. They spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Before we continue to the next section, we need to make one point of application as to how we might imitate this capital S servant. Let's not miss the reason that the servant has been given the tongue of those who are taught. Remember Isaiah 50 verse 4, the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Why? That I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Remember that these servant songs shed light on the nature and character of the capital S servant. He is given the tongue of those who are taught. He is given the words of God so that he may sustain with this word him who is weary. Surely, right now in your mind, you're hearing the echoes of Evan's sermon a couple weeks back when we saw that this servant in Isaiah 42, same servant, would not break a bruised reed and he would not quench a faintly burning wick, that he will faithfully bring forth justice. So let us note the gentleness that Jesus always seems to display toward the weak as a lesson to us. We must always seek the truth of God and of his word in order to be a blessing to those who are weak. Just as the servant in Isaiah 50 was given the tongue of those who are taught that he may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. May we also use our knowledge of the Word of God and our proclamation of the Word of God as a support and an encouragement and a comfort to the weak and to the weary. Growing in the knowledge of the Lord should always bring about humility, and it should fill our hearts with a desire to be of benefit to the body of Christ. We should never feel exalted in our knowledge. The more we know of God, the more we should be humbled before Him. Well, having examined how the servant hears and speaks the words of God the Father, let's look to our second point. The second point here is the capital S servant is strengthened by God. Let's continue reading in Isaiah 50 verse 7. We read there that the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint 
and I know that I shall not be put to shame. In this verse, the servant finds his strength in God. Despite the abuse he has endured for his faithfulness, he has not been disgraced since the Lord God is his help. Because of the strength that he finds in God, we see that he sets his face like a flint. The idea here of the servant setting his face like a flint should convey to us a picture, a picture of absolute determination. There's very few substances in the natural world harder than that of flint. And when we think of this, we think of a a commitment to the task at hand. The Gospel of Luke actually echoes this sentiment. In Luke chapter 9, we read, When the days drew near, that would be when the days drew near for Christ's crucifixion, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. There was a determined focus and a determined uh, commitment to the fulfillment of the covenant of redemption between God the Father and God the Son to the point that even the demeanor of his face showed that he was committed to faithful obedience to the Father. The writer of Hebrews also contributes to our understanding of Christ's determination to go to Calvary. I'm going to read the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 12. We see, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What's our example for this? Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we see that the strength that the servant found in God equipped him to press on for the joy that was set before him. Despite the torture and the shame of the cross, there was an absolute determination that compelled Christ to accomplish the purposes of his Father, regardless of the cost. Well, continuing in verse 8 of Isaiah 50, we read, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? The servant in this verse demonstrates absolute confidence as as God is the one who brings vindication. Excuse me. In doing this, he asks and answers two questions. Notice the first question in this verse. Who will contend or fight with me? His answer Let us stand up together. In essence, step on up. Who would bring something against me? Step to the mat. That's Jesus' invitation. Who will be my adversary? The second question. And he answers that with the statement, just come a little bit closer. Right? Jesus, in absolute confidence, confidence, answers these questions with such strength that it's almost uh, taking on the sound of a taunt, almost a bring-it-on type of posture from Christ because he knows that his strength is found in God. It is God who vindicates him, and he is God's righteous one. He concludes this verse with yet another question that I think needs no answer. He says, Behold, God helps me. Therefore, who will declare me guilty? Is this not the same posture that the Apostle Paul takes in the book of Romans? I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. This one is just fun to read. 
Okay, it, it doesn't matter what the topic of the sermon is. We can go to Romans 8 at any point and just throw this verse in and read it, and we can all get excited about this. Romans 8. Romans 8, I'd like for you to turn to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Most of you could quote this with me. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So we hear the same confidence of the faithful servant who was gathering his strength from God. We hear that same confidence spilling over in the words of the Apostle Paul. Just as in verse 6, we saw a description of the consequence of the servant's obedience. In verses 4 and 5 of that, of that passage, now we see in verse 9 a demonstration of the consequence of the servant's reliance on the strength of God. So look at verse 9 and, and see, what, see what the consequence of verses 7 and 8 are. Because it is God who vindicates. Because the servant is strengthened by the one true God. Isaiah 50 verse 9 reads, Behold, all of them, all of who? All of these people that the servant was just inviting to stand and come against him. All of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. So we see here that the strength of the servant is the strength of God. It is an overwhelming, unlimited strength. And because of this underlying strength, all those who come against the servant of God will fail. In a steady, gradual way, all those who find themselves in opposition to the capital S servant will be defeated and worn out like a garment that has been destroyed by moths. This is where I wish my voice was stronger because I'd like to repeat that and shout it. That is very, very important for us to recognize. I'm reminded by this um, the, of the most quoted, um, of the, one of the most quoted, I should say, Psalms in the New Testament, Psalm 110, verse 1. It reads, The Lord says to my Lord, God the Father says to God the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It was necessary for the servant to suffer, but he did so in the abiding strength of God, making him the Savior of the world. And next week, as we look closer at the suffering of the servant, it will be very important for us to accurately comprehend both of these realities. Through his suffering, the servant became the Savior of the world. He overcame the world. We have the strength of the servant through God, and we have the suffering of the servant. And when those things come together, we get the Savior of the world. So the application of these three verses for us now is, is very clear. I think it's summed up, obviously, in two points. First of all, if the capital S servant relied upon God for his strength, how much more ought we to do the same? We know that Jesus' routine was to spend time consistently alone with the Father. Even when the crowds pursued him in search of healings, in Luke 5, we see that he withdrew to a desolate place to pray. We also have examples of Jesus' prayers. For example, the high priestly prayer of John 17. 
and the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, in which he leaned on the, the strength that could be drawn from communion with God the Father. If Jesus Christ, in his human state, required that type of dependence upon God, how much more ought we to lean on the strength of God? Secondly, as followers of Christ, we can also have great confidence that the oppressive wickedness and unrighteousness of this present age will also wear out like an old moth-eaten garment. Consider, if you will, the Areopagus in Athens, where Paul's spirit was provoked by the Greek culture's incredible commitment to idolatry. Also consider the Roman Colosseum, where countless Christians, uh, today to us they're unnamed, but countless Christians were martyred and killed and slaughtered for the entertainment of pagan people. Today, both of these monuments of antiquity, these, these monuments of paganism, have been reduced to mere tourist attractions, while the gospel of the kingdom continues to be pressed into the world, conquering rebel hearts in violent places all around the globe. We've just gotten a report this morning from James Terrence of a group of, um, of, of missionaries in India who are being attacked relentlessly because they refuse to back down from the gospel call. Their cars are destroyed, their lives are threatened because they refuse to back away. Someday, those rebel hearts will also be conquered by the same gospel message that turned the Areopagus and the Colosseum into a tourist attraction. We have the promise of Scripture in this. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. His anointed, by the way, is the suffering servant that we're talking about. Let us burst their ponds apart, the pagans say. Let us cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth will be your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now get this. This part is to us. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. For those of us who take refuge in Christ, the Lord's anointed, the capital S servant, with him we share these promises when we suffer with Christ. We have every expectation that we should also share in his glory. Paul articulates this uh, in, in very few words, but, but very directly um, in his letter to Timothy, second letter to Timothy. Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, hit the wrong way, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, 
that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, though, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. For us to be in Christ is for us to have died with him, but it's also for us to be raised with him and is also for us to to, uh, be glorified with him at the end. So just as the servant set his face like flint, let us also be committed to living out the victory that Christ has won. Well, this brings us to our third point. And this point is in the form of a question. Will we seek the capital S servant or will we follow our own flame? Picking up again in verse 10 of Isaiah 50. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. The point of these two verses, I think, is clear. The first, who among you fears God and offers obedience to his Christ? In the midst of darkness, we are to trust in the servant and rely on him as the only way to God the Father. Remember from John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So in Christ, in the anointed one, in the capital S servant, we have the promise of eternal life. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We can rest in the promise of John chapter 10, where we see that my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Listen to these promises. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We have the security of our salvation and it's found in the strength of the capital S servant. And that strength is the strength of God. On the other hand, considering verse 11 of Isaiah 50, there's another promise implied by this. Verse 11, Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. This presents an alternative. We can either faithfully follow the servant, as verse 10 would imply, or those who seek to supply their own light or their own truth, as our postmodern ethos might call for, there is a promise for them as well. They have it from the hand of God, the guarantee that they will lie down in torment. The questions here before all of us are pretty simple. Will you trust in the name of the Lord and of his God, or will you equip yourself by the light that you can muster, by the knowledge that you can come to. It seems fitting for me to offer at this point the words of our prophet Isaiah in basically a gospel call from chapter 55. I'd like for you to turn there as we begin to wrap this sermon up. Turn to Isaiah 55. 
In light of this option between following the servant, the capital S servant, or following your own flame, let us read Isaiah 55 beginning in verse 6. We see from the prophet, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. How amazing is this that we serve a God who will abundantly pardon? How amazing is this that despite the wretchedness and the depravity of our fallen souls, a servant was sent, a capital S servant was sent, no no less than the second person of the Trinity who came in the form of a baby, the incarnation, the mystery of the incarnation that we refer to at Christmas time. And this servant came in such a way that he proclaimed the word of God. He rested on the strength of God and he presents us with this alternative today. Will you follow the servant or will you follow your own flame? As we prepare our hearts for the celebration of Christmas this year, let's consider with wonder and with amazement the supernatural fulfillment of even the most minute details in the prophetic record concerning Messiah. Let us praise our sovereign God for his decree, establishing the end from the beginning, that he may be perfectly glorified and that he may absolutely accomplish the eternal covenant of redemption between God the Father and God the Son. The incarnation of Jesus introduced into time and space the literal fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, and it provides for us a climax of redemptive history. So as we enjoy this season and as we mark this holiday with traditions of gifts and feasts and music and lights and celebrations, let us not allow ourselves to take for granted or to diminish the incomprehensible truth that the creator of all things fully and finally overcame our sin debt as the kingdom of God came to fallen man. May we remember the capital S servant as he heard and communicated the word of God. May we remember the capital S servant as he was strengthened by God. May we imitate him in that. And may we seek the capital S servant rather than following our own way. Let us pray. God, we're grateful for this passage. We're grateful for the truth of your word. I ask, Lord, that you would overcome my deficiencies and communicate this to your people, that we may live our lives today in a way that glorifies you. And as we celebrate the coming of Messiah some 2,000 years ago, as we reflect on what you did, God, may we just erupt in praise to your son, the capital S servant. And may this Christmas be all about him. And we pray this in his name. Amen.